Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hi everyone, I'm speaking to you today as part of the Voices in the Wilderness Leadership in Troubled Times series and I'm going to talk to you about women in political leadership. So I'm um, Professor Rosie Campbell and I'm the Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership here at King's College and my boss is um, Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia and the only woman to hold that position. And when Julia um, finished her time as the Prime Minister of Australia, she had some time to reflect on her experiences. And some of you may know that she was the victim of some pretty vitriolic attacks while she was in office. And she spent some time thinking about to what extent was that to do with the nature of Australian politics, the way she came into power, and to what extent had her gender played a role. And when she's writing her memoir, she did a lot of research looking at what um, evidence exists out there about whether women leaders face a harder time in office. Um, and she realised there was more research than was immediately obvious, hidden behind a- academic paywalls, but also real gaps in that research base. And so um, Julia came to King's and with the support of Ed Byrne, the principal, um, founded the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Um, and we are seeking, in collaboration with others, to eliminate barriers to women's access to leadership, but also to try to work towards a world where women leaders aren't judged on the basis of gender stereotypes. So, it's been 30 years since women began to outnumber men at universities. We've seen enormous progress in terms of gender equality. If you go back to the, my mum's generation, um, there was, in some universities, had a cap, for example, on the number of students who could study science subjects like chemistry, which my mum studied, a few years before she went to university, some universities said no more than 5% women in these courses because educating women was seen to be a waste of money, a waste of resources. But in such a short time, in living memory, that environment has been transformed where women actually make up the largest proportion of university students across the globe. But that progress has not necessarily been mirrored in leadership positions in all different kinds of sectors, from national parliaments to the media to business to the business world. And actually, in some areas, women's access to leadership positions is actually going backwards. If you look, for example, at IT specialists, if you, many of you would have seen the wonderful film Hidden Figures, will know that women played a really pivotal role in early computing. And actually, over time, women are less well represented in leadership positions in that industry. So what can be done about it? Well, there is an enormous amount of energy and resource spent in trying to promote women into leadership positions. But one of the problems is that some of the methods are actually counterproductive. For example, lots of organisations pay for external providers to come in and deliver unconscious bias training, for example. Sometimes that might be helpful, but actually research shows that sometimes it can send us backwards. We can think we've been fixed and now we're not biased anymore. And actually, it is an ineffective way of trying to bring about long-term change. So what we want to do 
is bringing evidence about what works to make change and make progress much more quickly into the hands of people who can deliver change. We want to break down silos so that lessons learned in one sector and one industry can be transferred to another, lessons learned in one country can be transferred to another. We want to bring researchers, activists and practitioners together. We want to challenge stereotypes and do all of this with the most rigorous evidence that we possibly can. So the World Economic Forum predicts that to reach gender equality, it's going to take 203 years. We would like with other organisations to bring that down to one generation, to 25 years. And we are focusing on four intersecting areas that we think if we can really accelerate progress in these areas, it will make a real difference. One of them is looking at gender equality at work and building inclusive cultures. The other is gender and data, making sure that we're really measuring and mapping what works and what changes are being delivered. The representation of women in the media, because the culture we find ourselves operating within is so critical to the environment that we find ourselves working within. And of course, the impact of women political leaders from the grassroots to world leaders. And that's what I'll focus on here today. Now, in this COVID-19 pandemic, many of you will have been aware of the news reports showing that women across the globe, although less likely to die from the virus, have been economically impacted disproportionately compared to men. Women more often work in the sectors that have been hit hardest by the crisis, more often work in retail and hospitality. They're more likely to have lost their jobs. And women are more likely to be in low-paid, precarious employment and have, again, struggled throughout this crisis for those reasons. Also, in many countries, women make up about three-quarters of the healthcare professionals who are supporting us through this crisis. There's a real danger with schools closing and childcare providers maybe unavailable for long periods, that actually we could see some of the progress towards gender equality we've seen in recent years go backwards. We know that both men and women have had to provide this impromptu childcare over this period, but the, the burden has fallen disproportionately on women's shoulders. And we know from data in the US that women are much more likely to have exited the employment market altogether because of these burdens. And that's a real danger to equality going forward, that women have less access to financial resources and the power that gives them. Telling you a little bit more about the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, um, we have a podcast that you can uh, follow. Julia interviews key thinkers on these issues globally. And we have, in pre-COVID-19 days, fantastic face-to-face -face events that King's students are welcome to sign up and participate in and we've been running a full programme of online events throughout the crisis that again you're very welcome to sign up to our mailing list and we would love you to join. Um, perhaps our most high profile event so far has been Julia in conversation with Hillary Roden Clinton. If you are interested in, our, in our work please go to this web page and sign up and join our network. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the main topic of um, today's conversation women political leaders. If you look at the aforementioned website, you'll see we have this report, Women Political Leaders, the impact of gender on democracy. And the, quest, uh, the question today about women's political leadership and voices in the wilderness is very pertinent. We know that unfortunately, even despite the progress that we have seen, women are less well represented in politics than men, especially at the highest levels. And yet when women are well represented in politics, it can make a transformative difference. So this report was written by my colleague, uh, Minna Cooper-Coles, and as I've said, you can read it in full from the website. 
So Minna's, um, Minna surveyed, with the help of um, other research staff, over 500 pieces of literature to try and understand what, what the kind of baseline is of our understanding around what the impact of women politicians has been. Um, and what she finds is that women um, politicians can play a role model role, that actually when there are more women actively involved in politics, it actually encourages more younger women to consider standing for office. So you can get this virtuous circle. Now, sometimes people say, oh, political parties say one of the reasons they have fewer women elected politicians is because they can't find them. There's a supply problem. Well, actually, part of that supply problem is actually younger women looking at politics and saying, well, this isn't for people like me. And the more women you can have in politics actually can create this virtuous circle where women are more likely to get involved. Also, quotas, when implemented properly, are found to increase women's representation in politics. In the UK, the Labour Party's used all-in shortlists, which are a form of quota, to ensure that women are elected in winnable seats since 1997. And now actually over 50% of Labour MPs are women. The Conservative Party, which doesn't use a quota, has gone from 9% women MPs in 1992 to 20% today. So you can see the radical impact that have the quota policy has brought about. Now, quota policies are highly controversial. Many people find the idea of a quota of one gender or the other extremely problematic, but they certainly work in terms of shortcutting the biases in the system, which mean that women are more likely to be selected in seats that were unwinnable for the party. And that is still true of the Conservative Party. Women candidates are more often put in seats that the party with a male or woman candidate is less likely to win. Voters in this country, in the UK, don't penalise women candidates. They, don't, they vote for the party, not the, the sex of the candidate. And this research globally confirms this, that gender quotas work. Another factor that is influential is the political funding um, for example, in the United States, EMILY's List has been in operation since the 1980s, where women have access to funds that they can that are directed to try and ensure that women can get gain elected office. And in the US, you will all know that having access to funds is absolutely critical to election. So really targeting women to make sure they have access to these kind of resources is essential. And political parties are the major barrier to women's entry into politics. Political parties in many systems are the selectorate, not voters. Voters don't decide which candidates are put in front of them. The political parties do. And in, throughout the world, at least in developed countries, voters tend not to punish women candidates. It's the parties that act as the barrier. And so in order to remove that barrier, political parties have to step in and change the way they recruit candidates. There's a huge amount of research showing that actually um, women are less likely to look in the mirror and think, I'm the next elected politician for my district. But if someone asks them, they're actually more likely to step forward. So women are less likely to think um, of themselves as qualified. But actually, if a member of a political party reaches out and says, you would be great, then they're, very, then they're much more likely to step forward. So the role political parties play in encouraging participation is absolutely crucial. What about the quality of democracy itself? Well, I should start by saying that just from a justice point of view, if over 50% of the population are not well represented, there's simply a matter of, is that unfair? Is that unequal? Is that unjust? But beyond that, bringing more women into politics can make a real change. 
Research shows that women in politics tend to do more constituency work than men. Um, and that having more women representatives is related to lower levels of corruption. I wouldn't want to say that either of these two factors are about anything intrinsically different between men and women. They're to do with socialisation processes and expectations of men's and women's behaviour. But if you have a more meritocratic system that actually promotes the best people, the best people are equally likely to be men and women. So this might be correlation rather than causation. In a fairer system, you will have more women representatives, and in a fairer system, you'll have lower levels of corruption. We can't unpick that to be sure. Evidence also suggests that women tend towards, and this is really important, this isn't about all men and all women and the polar um, compare opposites, but women tend towards more cooperative and inclusive leadership styles than men. And again, I would argue this is to do with socialization and expectations of our behavior. And women also alter the framework of politics by introducing areas for legislation and policy that were previously considered private and personal. For example, issues like domestic violence or female genital um, mutilation were considered to be um, not areas for public consideration prior to the entry of women into politics. Moving on from this, women are, have been found to be more likely to promote equal rights, reproductive rights, sexual health, families and childcare, as well as stopping violence against women, but also to promote broader social issues such as education, wellcare and healthcare. And ex this extends to the international sphere where women's politicians tend to spend less on militarism and more on aid. Women in politics often also see representing women as part of their role. And women in politics are more able to propose and pass women-friendly registration when there's a greater proportion of women in the legislative body. Stacked up together, all of this research suggests that having more women in politics has a transformative role for women and men in society, that social services and welfare services tend to be enhanced when there are more women in politics. But there are real gaps in our knowledge. There are under-researched areas of the globe particularly the Middle East and Central Asia, there are too little research that brings together the non-English and the English language research. There are gaps around how to make political institutions more sensitive and welcoming to women. And on what motivators encourage women to participate in politics? The different kinds of regulations and reforms that political parties can bring into place to accelerate the progression of women is another area that will benefit from more research. And another alarming area, which has been growing in consideration in recent years, is violence against women in politics. And there is now a field of research that treats this quite differently to violence against politicians generally. Violence against women in politics often takes on a sexualized nature and is often about trying to make women exit from the political process. And we've seen this rising across the globe in, an, in, in both developed and developing countries. And it's a very alarming trend that warrants more research. More research would benefit um, us by helping us understand whether when there are more women in politics, institutions are considered to be more legitimate. And the intersection between gender and ethnicity is a really important area for future research. There's quite a bit of research in the United States showing the critical role that black women politicians play, for example. But globally, we need to understand better how intersectionality operates in the political sphere equally in terms of class and gender we, op we might um, we have 
too little research looking at whether working class women have access to political representation. So that was a brief summary of that particular piece of research. And I'd like to draw out some of the themes on it, um, from it to think a little bit about our question around voices in the wilderness and leadership in times of crisis. So we clearly are in a massive global crisis, um, unseen for at least 100 years in terms of the, uh, the pandemic. Um, and there's been widespread speculation in the news media that women leaders have handled the crisis differently from male leaders. And there has been some research that bears this out. Um, we have to be very cautious that in 2020, there were only 13 women leaders of countries, 13. Um, it's a very small number to extrapolate from. So we have to be very careful about drawing very strong conclusions. But I think there is some research and there are reasons to think that gender plays a role in leadership styles. And I think it's really important here to separate gender from what we might call biological sex. Um, gender can be a performance. Gender has social expectations. It's cultural. What we think of as gendered behaviour changes over time and across place. But we certainly have, and we have spectrums of gendered behaviour. But I think we have seen over the last period a polarisation of gendered leadership styles. And I think if you think about Donald Trump, Vladimir uh, Putin, Jair Bolsonaro, we've had a small group of hyper-masculine male leaders who've adopted what I would say is a toxic leadership style, which is individualistic, hierarchical, um, completely without humility, unwilling to listen to experts, um, makes it very difficult for people to speak truth to power, and uh, valorizes um, winning as an individual um, beyond anything else. And I think this has been particularly catastrophic in terms of outcomes for COVID-19. And it's not because these particular leaders are men. There are male leaders around the globe who don't adopt this hyper-masculine style. It's their decision to perform their gender in this particular kind of way. And you see here I have Trump and Putin. And then to the left-hand side, I have Angela Merkel and um, Jacinda Ardern. And they could, in some ways, um, be put on polar opposites in terms of the way that they behave, the way that they make decisions, and the way they present themselves publicly. Although actually Angela Merkel and Jacinda Ardern are very different kinds of politicians. Angela Merkel has a scientific background and is quite a, a bureaucratic, it's fair to say bureaucratic, but she doesn't empathise or emote publicly the way that Jacinda Ardern does when she has read to children, for example. Um, and yet both of them have an approach to leadership which is more collaborative and, and more um, connected to others and more willingness, willing to accept mistakes and perhaps take risks than the other two gentlemen on the screen. So why would we expect to see gendered leadership styles? Well, theories about gender help us here. One of them I've alluded to already is from psych um, psychological approaches. It's the idea of agency versus communion. It, sociologically, um, we know that girls tend to be encouraged to be nice, to be empathetic, to be warm, to be friendly, and that girls who display too many agentic traits, at least historically, have been described as things like bossy. And so women who wish to occupy leadership positions often find themselves facing a double bind. As women, they perhaps consider to be incompetent and incapable of performing the role, but if they um, if they show their 
softer, more communicative style, style that might reinforce that view that they're incompetent. But if they are uh, more um, rational and controlled in their exterior um, performance, then they might be accused of being unfeminine. And so we think of the Iron Lady or the uproar when Hillary Clinton cried that it's very difficult balance for women politicians to tread. Um, and this agency versus communion um, conundrum, men more often are more likely to be agentic and to think about um, the promotion of the individual first and women more likely to be communal and think about the group. These are only on average. And as I've said, I think they are socially constructed rather than biologically constructed differences. But if we think about why women leaders may have performed better, it might be because they've been more willing to employ a communicative um, approach and that they've been collaborating rather than thinking, actually, this is about my personal individual success and failure. Another factor might be risk aversion. Research showing that women are less, on average, less willing to take risks than men. Again, I would argue this is for sociological reasons, but actually the trade-off between the economic impact and the social impact of COVID is a very, very difficult one. And where you place yourself on a risk aversion scale might make a difference to how um, decisions are made. I've already mentioned collaboration versus competition. What is, what is the, your approach to a problem? Do you think we must um, compete with other countries to get as many vaccines as we can? Or is it actually better to collaborate and think actually globally, how can we make sure that all of our populations are protected? Performance of gender is critical here. This is about how we behave rather than necessarily how we are, and that it's more difficult for women to perform an agentic leadership role and easier for them to perform a communal role because those are our gendered stereotypical expectations. Another factor might be selection bias. There are very few women leaders, and it could be argued it might be harder to reach leadership positions as a woman than a man. And so possibly the women leaders that we have globally running countries, leading countries, may actually simply be better than their male counterparts. I'm not sure that's true, but selection bias could play a role. So as I said, it's early days to have um, really rigorous research about these questions. And the number of women world leaders is relatively small. There are these two pieces of research that shows some, show some findings here. One of them is that an analysis of speeches made by women leaders and men leaders during the crisis, showing that women leaders more often made reference to the impact on individuals and reference to welfare services, for example, mental health and domestic violence. Men also more often used war analogies. Um, women less often used war analogies. Or another piece of exploratory research which found that the outcomes were better in countries with women leaders. Again, I would hang a caveat on that is that we are still in the middle of this crisis um, and things might change, but there does seem to be some evidence to back up this wide speculation that women leaders have performed better during the COVID-19 crisis. Finally, I'd like to draw us back to the issues raised um, by the title of this series, um, Voices in the Wilderness, um, Leadership in Times of Crisis and the question of women's leadership. And I don't think that good leadership is in fact gendered. I think that we have gendered performances of leadership, but actually men and women are both equally capable of being good leaders. Um, there is a provocative, I find funny and clever 
um, book by a, a colleague called Thomas Shamora Prumuzak around why do we keep promoting incompetent men? And you can see his TED talk on this link. And he argues that um, a lot of the, the characteristics that we look for in leaders are not the characteristics that are associated with success. He says, for example, that we tend to reward overconfidence rather than competence, and that we tend to look for leaders who have this um, unmeasurable quality, charisma. And he says that actually charismatic individuals are often just overconfident individuals who believe in themselves beyond their own abilities. And he says that globally, if you look at, for example, um, the leaders of the most successful companies, you often won't recognize their names. That those um, CEOs who've managed to get themselves a lot of press attention are focused more on their own image and their own profile raising rather than the success of their company. And he argues that actually the best leaders are those who really care about the people around them and spend a lot of time trying to enhance and make a better working environment for everyone and view the, the success of the organisation as a collective endeavour rather than simply a manifestation of their own success really worth having a watch. And I think that good leadership is empathetic. Um, thinking about those examples um, in the COVID-19 pandemic, really trying to put yourself in the shoes of other individuals, thinking about the single parent who perhaps worked in a call centre and found that nurseries were closed, sent home with a laptop and a couple of toddlers and, carry, and told to carry on with their working hours as usual. That's impossible. And anyone with any empathy and try to put themselves in those shoes would realise that. And a good leader, man or woman, would realise that. But sometimes we have to make space to hear those voices. And a good leader makes space to hear others' perspectives. We can't simply know what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes without taking the time to listen to them. And good leaders, men and women, listen and think about the experiences of others. And in the political sphere, those good leaders make better policy that is better informed for everyone. Even better is to make sure that we have people in leadership positions who have a diversity of experience and know what it was like to be that single parent, for example, so that the experience, the empathy comes readily. And that's another reason why having a diversity of thought in leadership is so important, so that we can make sure the voices are in the room when those decisions are made. Critically, I don't think leadership is something that we hold ourselves as individuals. It's something that we create together. Leadership is an, an, is an active, um, collective um, behaviour when we're goal-focused together with a shared vision and we want to support each other to reach that goal. And that, to me, is real leadership. Real leadership is being prepared to recognise that you have a junior member of the team who maybe is going to be promoted above you. And rather than seeing that as a threat, you see it as your success, that that person that you have helped them develop and you've helped them find a good role. And that really is good leadership. Good leadership is humble and aware of um, your, our own weaknesses. If you're a good leader, you should really aim for competence as a minimum and minimize overconfidence. A little bit of risk-taking is inevitable but knowing our limits, being willing and ready and able to um, listen to advice from experts and to respond to it, to know the limits of our knowledge is absolutely essential feature of good leadership. And as I said before, leadership styles are gendered 
that men and women are both equally capable of being good and poor leaders. And the features of leadership styles, which I think are very, very important to give more emphasis, this collective, empathetic and competent approach is something that men and women, we should all champion. And when we're looking to recruit leaders, we should take a step back from the charismatic and think about actually what is competence in this field? What do we actually want this person to deliver? And how are we going to make sure that they are able to do that? Thank you for sparing the time to listen to me and I hope that you will join us at some of our events. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.